Do you remember, maybe you're old enough to remember the $6 million man? Sure. Yeah, he'd cost a lot more today, but that's <laughs> all right because the government would pay for it. So, uh, you know, we had the $6 million man, and, and the voice would come on at the beginning of the program, and he would say, we can rebuild him. We can make him better than before. And I think that's what I can almost hear God saying. We can sanctify him. You know, we can create we can help him be better than he was before. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello, this is Nick Galetti, I'm the host of this episode of the LDS Perspectives Podcast. This episode's guest is Brad Wilcox. Brad Wilcox grew up in Provo, Utah, except for childhood years spent in Ethiopia, Africa. He served his mission in Chile, or Chile, and later returned to that country to serve as a mission president. He is a professor at Brigham Young University, recently changed over to the Department of Ancient Scripture, and has served as a member of the Sunday School General Board. He is the author of several titles, including The Continuous Atonement and The Seven-Day Christian, among others. He's here today to talk about his widely and well-received BYU devotional, His Grace is Sufficient. Thank you very much, Brother Wilcox, for coming in. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's good to be with you. Absolutely. So on July 12th, 2011, you gave this talk, His Grace is Sufficient. It was presented at BYU. I'm curious, what was July 13th like? Well, what was interesting is that it was a summer devotional. The, the devotionals during fall and winter are usually very well attended, but during summer they have them in the Dion Concert Hall because they're not traditionally really well attended. So as I prepared for the devotional, I was just thinking about a few hundred kids that would be there, and uh, I was just kind of speaking to them. And I didn't realize in my mind uh, that because it was being recorded that it would be available to many more people. So I'm grateful that the talk has been received by others, but I'm kind of glad that I didn't know it was going to be recorded like that <laughs> because uh, I was able to speak just from my heart and very sincerely to the young people who were there, and I wasn't thinking beyond that. Okay. So I'm very grateful that, uh, that the talk has been well-received beyond the few hundred kids that were there who did hear it when I first presented it. I imagine you still get emails about it because people are still listening to it they're still downloading it and watching it yeah it's been it's been very uh it's been satisfying to know that the message is reaching people and that uh it's reached people in prison it's reached people who are going through a repentance process it's reached investigators who are looking into the church it's reached those who have stepped away from the church it's reached missionaries who finally know what to say when someone says, hey, do you Mormons believe in grace or don't you believe in grace? Yeah. And I've just been so thrilled to hear missionaries come back. They'll see me on campus and they'll say, hey, we, we uh, used your talk in one of our lessons with this family uh, because it helped us teach about grace. And so it, it makes me happy to know that, that uh, the talk is kind of ending up in the hands of those who, who need it most. Yeah. Now, the, the talk is called His Grace is Sufficient, and that, that phrase, sufficient, or I guess that word sufficient, 
is used a lot. And I know when I use that phrase with my children, that's normally because, you know, when I ask them to clean their room, if, if it's clean enough and I, and I say it's sufficient. <laughs> so it's to me in my head, it feels like it's achieving a minimum standard, but that's not how this is used here. Why is that word significant? His grace is sufficient. I think I'm using that word. It's a quote. It's actually sure. a quote from the Book of Mormon. But I think I'm using that word to remind people that it's sufficient in many ways. It's enough. It's enough to save us. It's enough to perfect us. And it's enough to help us through that entire perfecting process. And I think that's what I wanted to communicate because I think too many young people and you know, those of us who are older as well, we kind of feel like God's help is forever out of our reach. It's like, once I'm worthy, then God will listen to my prayers. Once I'm worthy, then God will help me. Once I'm worthy, then I have access to his grace. And I think the message I wanted to share is that God's grace isn't dependent on us meeting some sort of minimum standard, but rather it's the power that helps us meet any standard at all. Young people say to me, well, I'm not worthy to pray. And I say, we don't pray because we're worthy. We pray because we need help. Yeah, but I'm not worthy to go to church or take the sacrament. Well, we don't go to church because we're worthy. We go because we are willing to be perfected. We're willing to become worthy. Well, I'm not worthy to go on a mission. I'm not worthy to go to the temple. Well, we don't go there because we're worthy. We go there because this is one more place, one more environment where God and Christ can make us more like, like them. And so I think sometimes we forget that grace isn't a prize for our righteousness. It is the source of righteousness. And it's not... It's not a reward for our worthiness, but it's the source of worthiness. And when we get that in our heads, then suddenly we just don't feel like God and heaven and celestial glory is so out of reach. And, and it is hopeful. Yeah. And it's interesting that you, you're kind of phrasing a lot of this in what people assume it is versus what it is. And there's this perception that a lot of people have with what grace is or was in their minds. And some have asserted, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps rightly so, that the doctrine of grace that you've presented in this talk is maybe a departure or different from what they're used to hearing in the church. I don't know that it's a departure. I think maybe it's just a, a clearer way of teaching. More it. complete. Yeah, because I think what happened when I first started writing the book, The Continuous Atonement, I started writing that when I was a bishop in a young single adult ward. And the young people would come, they'd confess, they'd feel better. Then they'd go out and blow it again. Then they'd come, they'd confess, they'd feel better. And about three or four times through that cycle, then they'd just give up. And that's when I thought, we've got to teach grace differently. We've got to teach about this divine assistance in a different way. It's not that the doctrine's new. Good grief. You look through the hymn book, and there are just, I, I mean, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of hymns that teach grace. Uh, you look through the Book of Mormon, and grace is found throughout the book. You look through the statements of prophets, and both past prophets and current prophets, and grace is there. 
so it's not that the doctrine's new. I think perhaps what I tried to do was to think of a way, how can I teach this so that it's hopeful and, rather than discouraging? See, if we think about uh, the, the analogy we all grew up with, Stephen Robinson's analogy about buying the bicycle, I think that was hopeful in its day to people who felt like they had to do everything. And suddenly he came and said, no, you don't have to do everything. You just have to do your best. Now, that was a hopeful perspective at one point. But I think now we're at another point where young people feel like, well, I can't even do my best. You know, look, all you have to do is, is your best. All you have to do is try your hardest. Well, then we're talking to people who, who don't feel like they can ever try their hardest or ever do their best. And so I think it's to them that I needed to expand on Brother Robinson's analogy and say, it's not about buying a bike. The bike has been purchased. It's about learning to ride the bike. And see, Brother Robinson never talked about that in that analogy. Right. He taught about it, but not within that analogy. And I thought, we need an analogy that deals not with buying or purchasing or ratios of his or part earning. and my part or earning. I thought, we need, to, we need to find something that deals with learning, learning how to ride that bike, learning how to get up when you fall off the bike, and learning how to keep going even when you've skinned your knee. And I think that's what made me start thinking, I need something that these young people can relate to that goes beyond the analogy that makes them feel like, hey, whether it's all or whether it's just my best, both of them are out of reach. And I wanted young people to realize that, no, grace is within our reach. And so as I tried to frame it with the idea of learning, the piano analogy, for sure. example— it's not perfect. No analogy is. But at least it helps people focus more on Christ's grace is to help us learn, to help us grow, to help us progress, rather than Christ's grace is some sort of benefit that's forever out of my reach because I keep making the same mistakes over and over. Yeah. Grace is not some mythical quest that we go after. It's something that that's surrounds it's us. It's the power all the time. to to go on the quest. Well, many people, when they talk about grace or any gospel doctrine for that matter, they try and throw an analogy to it. You referenced your piano analogy. There was the bike analogy. And this is meant, of course, to help people understand. It's not meant to define. But for those that haven't heard the piano analogy, will you please give us what that is? Yeah, that, that was a analogy that was... A wonderful gift to me. And I have to acknowledge that that was not something I, I thought of as much as it was something that came to me. And I, I acknowledge that, that blessing. But I wrote in the continuous atonement and then later used the analogy in the talk that you're, you're speaking about. But the analogy has to do with a child learning how to play the piano. Mom pays the piano teacher. Mom pays the piano teacher in full. And because mom pays that debt, then mom can turn to the child and expect something. Practice. The child's practice doesn't pay the piano teacher, and the child's practice doesn't even repay mom for paying the piano teacher. The child's practice is just how he's using 
this incredible gift that his mother's given him. He's using, he's taking advantage of this great opportunity that his mother has given him to learn to live his life at a different level, to have a life at a higher plane. And so I compare that to the atonement in that Jesus paid our debt to justice. Justice requires immediate perfection or a payment, a penalty, when that perfection is not obtained. Jesus paid that penalty. He didn't pay it all except for a few coins. He didn't pay it all except for a few little punishments that will be ours. He paid the entire debt. And because he pays that debt, then he turns to us and he can expect something. Practice. Practice, practice, practice. He says, follow me. Live as I've lived. Keep my commandments. These aren't things we're doing to earn his sacrifice. These are things we're doing to use, to utilize this sacrifice. Many Christians look at the atonement as uh, some sort of, of sacrifice that Jesus has made that now they won't have to make that sacrifice. But we see the atonement as Latter-day Saints not just as something Jesus has done for us, He's taken our penalty, but we also see it as an investment that he's making in us. And so, as he asks us to live the life he's lived, to emulate him, he's teaching us to live like him, and he's helping us all along through that process. He's helping us and tutoring us throughout that process. So, Jesus exchanges justice's deal— which is immediate perfection or a penalty, Jesus now offers us a different arrangement, eventual perfection, and not alone, but with his help, with his grace, and with his tutoring throughout that process. Now, that, that couches, that con- puts a context of learning in connection with grace that I don't think we've always seen. Most born-again Christians see grace as, you know, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, and because I of God's grace, because of Christ's grace, then I can just get out of jail, and so I don't need to change. But Latter-day Saints see grace as a way of being transformed so that we don't end up in jail over and over <laughs> and over and over again. Yeah. But that somehow through that process, we can be living our life at a, at a higher plane. And I, I want to throw out another date here because as you talk about how there seems to be a very big difference between how Latter-day Saints have either heard or been taught about grace or even used the word grace, on April 5th, 2015, President Uchtdorf gave a talk in General Conference that the is— The gift is, of grace. yes. So when that talk came out, first of all, what was your impression as you were sitting there having been this guy that has talked about it and, and felt passionate oh, about I it? I just cried. I literally cried, not only because the talk was so beautiful, but because it was coming from him. I mean, it's one thing if Brad Wilcox speaks on this subject. It's one thing if Stephen Robinson speaks on this subject. It's one thing if, if you know, anybody speaks on this. But to have it coming from a member of the First Presidency in General Conference, that was so validating, and it was so 
landmark because I think you're right. That suddenly said to the church and to those who are not members of the church that this is not a topic we avoid. This is a topic that we embrace. We have permission to talk about it now in a sense. Yeah. And I think for many years, Latter-day Saints grew up and you didn't even hear the word grace very much. Bob Millett talks about how funny it was when he was growing up in the South and he went to his dad and said, what about grace? And his dad said, no, we're Mormons. We don't believe in that. And Bob Millett laughs about that because he himself now has written many books and done many seminars on grace. But see, that was his father's reaction. We don't do that. And I think that's because we don't want to go over to where born-agains have hijacked this doctrine. We don't want to go to a position where, hey, party on, dude, whatever, because we're all saved by grace. See, that, that extreme is a real peril that Mormons want to avoid. But I think by the same token, by not going there, sometimes we go to an extreme ourselves of saying, you know, God helps those who help themselves. We got to meet God halfway we will work out our salvation. Um, we'll save ourselves and all our dead. I mean, we, we kind of take it to an extreme where our pioneer heritage comes out. Yeah. And man, willpower and grit and hard work are just enthroned above all other virtues. And so I think we kind of tend to go over to our own extreme, which is just as perilous. I think instead... What we need to understand is that grace is a relationship. It's not his part and my part. It's his heart and my heart beating together, loving each other, and being conformed to the same image. When we see that relationship, then I think we can avoid the extremes that get, that get people into trouble when they're thinking or teaching uh, about about this doctrine. Well, we have the phrase, after all we can do, and these things that aren't necessarily incorrect, but they're easily in, misinterpreted. Yeah, I had a seminary teacher write me a, a letter about that. And because in my book, The Continuous Atonement, I talk about maybe it's after all we can do, like we, not as in you and me, but we as in Jesus and me, working together. And this uh, seminary teacher kind of took me to task, and he says, that's not exactly what that scripture <laughs> means. But he said, if you look at the context around the verse, then yes, it is what it means. Because in the context in which that verse, which we quote so often, is found, we also read about buying milk and honey without money, without price. We're being taught about grace. And Nephi is quoting Jacob, his brother, and there's just a wonderful teaching about grace. And so in the context, maybe the we doesn't specifically mean Jesus and me, but when I think of it that way, then I'm being true to the context in which the scripture's found, and I'm being true to the relationship that grace is. You know, I had an evangelical leader write me an email after that talk, and he said, I'm so happy to hear grace being taught at Brigham Young University. 
He said, I never thought I'd see the day. <laughs> and then he said, I'm so grateful that this means Mormons are finally adopting the evangelical doctrine of grace and that you're abandoning this foolishness about Joseph Smith teaching that we can become like God. Well, I wrote him back and I said, I'm so honored that you would take time to listen to my talk. Yeah. I really am. I'm very honored that you would even take time to listen to it. And I hope that grace is taught many, many more times at BYU and throughout the church. But this isn't an evangelical doctrine that we are adopting, right. that we've kind of come late to the party and we finally realize that this is a doctrine. I said, this is a doctrine of the restoration. And this is a doctrine that's grounded in the scripture of the restoration and it's grounded in the teachings of Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith's teachings that we can actually be transformed and become more like God, more like Christ, that's at the very heart of the doctrine of grace for us. Justification and sanctification. I think many Christians see grace as being part of justification, which we also see, but it's also part of sanctification. And I think that's what Elder Uchtdorf was teaching when he said it opens the gates and windows of heaven. He said it opens the gates. Yes, because of Christ's grace, we can get into heaven. But because of Christ's grace, because of the open windows through which he can bless us and help us and sanctify us, then not only can we get into heaven, but we can become heavenly. We can become more like God in Christ. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that you talk about these these terms with again respect to works and grace, which has been quite of a debate. I served my mission in Baton Rouge. Oh, I'll bet so, you, so you I, were up to your ears with this. <laughs> I had conversations about that all the time. Um but it's interesting too because and and I don't know what the reception has been for the talk that you gave on August 1st, 2015. Uh, at BYU Idaho, Idaho, I believe it's called the Law of the Gospel. Yes, um, I don't know if it's received the same attention that His Grace is Sufficient talk did, but I viewed it as the second side of the same coin. It's in fact partially the works portion of the grace talk that you gave before. Is that how you saw it? Not necessarily, okay. but I think that's insightful that you would see the two going together. Um, I think. As I, as I look at works and faith, works and grace, I think the message I hope to communicate is that, yes, works are essential, but for a different purpose, not essential to save us. Christ has already saved us. That's done. He, when he asks works, he's asking us to not just be saved by grace, but to be changed by grace. This whole idea of sanctification, to be made better. Do you remember, uh, do you remember, maybe you're old enough to remember the $6 million man? Sure. Yeah, he'd cost a lot more today, but that's <laughs> all right because the government would pay for it. So, uh, you know, we had the $6 million man, and, and the voice would come on at the beginning of the program, and he would say, we can rebuild him we can make him better than before. And I think that's what I can almost hear God saying. We can sanctify him. You know, we can create. 
we can help him be better than he was before. And so while many Christians see that we're saved by grace, and I would say, yes, we are. Many Christians ask me, have you been saved by grace? And I say, yes, absolutely, completely. But then I say, have you been changed by grace? Because that's the part of the equation that I don't know that they've considered. And our works are there for a different purpose. Our works are part of how we're being changed and sanctified and the gospel is being internalized. And I think as we look at that, then we're able to say, yeah, works are essential, but not to save us, but to help us move forward toward our ultimate goal. Yeah. Um, you know, missionaries say, when you say, what's our goal? They say to invite all to come unto Christ because that's the mission statement that's stated right there in Preach My Gospel. But that's not complete. We want to invite all to come unto Christ so that they can become like Christ through faith, through repentance, through the covenants, through the gift of the Holy Ghost, through enduring to the end. That's how we're able to use this sacrifice that's been made for us, use this gift that's been given to us so that not only can we come to Christ, but we can become like Christ. And so I see coming to Christ as just a means to the end. It's not the end. And I think many Christians and even many LDS missionaries feel like that's the end. But we come to Christ so that he can help us go the rest of the way. Yeah. There was a talk given, again, at BYU. These seem to be all be coming from BYU. But there was a talk given a few years back by Elder Bruce R. McConkie where he talked about grace. Did you get a chance to— Yes. That, that talk— it, And it, he says, are we saved by grace? Yes, yes. absolutely. Yes, unequivocally. Yeah. And, and so I, we kind of mentioned before this, this feels new to some people, but there are places throughout the church's even re- recent history— where this has been talked about. Well, Gerald Lund taught about it beautifully, and he would say, he would say, we don't have to apologize for Paul's teachings on being saved by grace. Our, we, we believe that. Yes, we are saved by grace. And I think, you know, we can go back to early brethren, Brigham Young, who said, when we get to the celestial kingdom, we will have to turn around and acknowledge that it is by grace. Yeah. You know, nobody's going to turn around and say, wow, I sure hiked up that mountain. We're going to have to turn around and say, it is only by grace. And so, yes, I think that we don't have to apologize for saying we're saved by grace. And we certainly uh, want our fellow Christians to understand that we accept that. We just believe that and beyond. We believe that not only are we saved by grace— but that grace also plays a role beyond that salvation. I think what sets Mormons apart is not that we don't depend wholly and completely, 100%, absolutely, on Christ's grace. I think it's that we have a more complete, whole view of salvation. It's not grace that we differ on. It's what is meant by salvation, because while many Christians see only one or two definitions of salvation, Latter-day Saints see at least six or seven, including 
exaltation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's take grace on a very practical level for a moment as we finish up. So if you can, try and give kind of another capsule definition of what grace is, but maybe put it in the context of how it applies on an everyday kind of basis. Mm. I think grace in the gospel, in the Bible dictionary, it talks about enabling power. Enabling doesn't sound too nice to most people in today's world. We're not to enable our children. We don't want to enable the homeless. But I love the way the definition says enabling power. It's not something that God gives us in place of his standards or in place of his commandments. It is not, grace isn't the absence of God's high expectations. It's the presence of his power. And that's why I love that definition, enabling power, because it's the power that he gives us to be able to do the things that he's asking us to do. I love the the phrase divine assistance, which I think Elder Uchtdorf has used and also comes from the Bible dictionary, that divine assistance. Now, some people say, all right, then on a practical basis, where is it that we uh, invite that grace into our lives? And it would have to be in the sacrament. I think it says we take the sacrament, and if you listen to the word in the sacrament prayer, it says willing, willing. We're not saying we're perfect. We're saying we're willing to be perfected. It's like we're going on a big cross-country trip, and some girl at BYU says to me, I know the atonement's there, Brother Wilcox, but my goal is to never have to use it. And, I mean, part of me says good luck because, you know, nobody gets by without sinning. But when I turned to her, I said, I understand where you're coming from and bless you for just not wanting to sin in the first place. But you're looking at the atonement as only forgiveness for sins. And that's not it. There's more to the atonement than that. So I said, it's like we're going on this cross-country trip, and you're saying, okay, I know the gas station's there, but my goal is to not have to use it. I said, you're going to use it again and again and again. And I think when we go into the church on Sunday, when we sit down to take the sacrament, that's kind of what we're doing. We're promising God, hey, we're going to keep going on this trip. And he says, I'm going to refill your tank. I'm going to give you the energy and the power and the help that you need to be able to keep going. Now, some people say, well, then why is the sacrament taken away from us at the very moment when we may need it the most? I think, first of all, we're not the ones who decide whether we take the sacrament or not. Because if that's the case, I know a lot of perfectionists who say, oh, I'm not worthy to take it this week. I'm not worthy to take it this week. And they're never getting gas in their tank. But there are some times when we're asked to not partake of the sacrament by a priesthood leader. Maybe not so much as a punishment, as much as a reminder, reminding us that we need to take this seriously and that it's not just a little motion that we go through. It's not just a hoop that we're jumping. When we're refilling the gas, that's, when we're refilling the tank, that is, that's a serious thing. And, and maybe we're asked to not take the sacrament for a time so that we can be reminded of how important this is and how we shouldn't take it for granted. But unless we've been asked by a priesthood leader to not partake, 
I think our job is to partake, to partake, not try to judge ourselves whether we're worthy or not worthy, but just make those promises to keep trying, to keep going, and partake of that sacrament. And then when priesthood leaders are helping us, their goal isn't to say, oh, no, you never will take the sacrament again. Their goal is to say, let's get you focused again on that long-term journey, and let's make sure that you're taking this sacrament in a way that's really going to benefit you and not just in a thoughtless way. Think about the, the commandment, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Well, of course, that means we shouldn't swear using the name of the Lord, but when we partake of the sacrament, we're taking his name upon us. And if we're taking that without any thought to making positive changes in our life, not any thought to actually moving forward in that journey, then perhaps we're taking his name in vain. And maybe that's why priesthood leaders sometimes say, stop, think about what you're doing. And if you're really ready to do this, then let's do it. But don't just do it out of, oh, this is what we do in our Mormon culture. Let's do this seriously. Let's take his name in a way that will mean something. And let's do it in a meaningful way that is going to give you the power, the, the invite the power of his grace into your life. He not only gives us his name, he gives with it his power. And that's what we call grace. Yeah. Thank you very much for all that. And we want to invite people to go to the posting for this episode at LDS Perspectives. And they, there, there will be a link to His Grace is Sufficient, a talk by Brother Brad Wilcox, given at BYU. And uh, thank you again for coming on. I know that this is something you've talked about a lot in the past, since, especially since you gave this talk. So thank you very much for coming in and talking once again about it. Thank you. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. Let's talk about the influence of, of Arnold Freiberg and how we've uh, come to imagine scenes from church history. Freeberg is an amazing artist. I could tell you the stories of Samuel the Lamanite, the Stripling Warriors, and Abinadi, not because of the text, but because of the powerful images that Freeberg created and that were in the Book of Mormon and so oft represented. And, you know, one of the distinctive characteristics is that, you know, many of the male figures in his images are portrayed as being incredibly muscular. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're uh, buff. They're... And, and see, this is back to the tension of art and historical reality. But he, in his own interviews, he said, you know, I wanted to depict their spiritual strength through their physical strength. And so once again, that, that's not reality. Uh, I don't think Abinadi, but even if Abinadi was 90 years old, I, I'd put that man on the cover of Men's Health. Um, right. Because he's ripped out of his mind. You know, he's using an artistic device to communicate an idea. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.